I await you, all the fallen, in the garden of remembrance, like a Sufi. And now you swirl in my thoughts, like a Sufi. In those hosts of names, I hold on to yours. Like a Sufi Break free of the chains Twirl in freedom Like a Sufi Hello and welcome to Swana Region Radio A weekly review of politics and culture Bringing you the voices of the voices From Kolkata to Casablanca Here on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles 98.7 in Santa Barbara, and 93.7 FM in Northern San Diego, as well as streaming worldwide on kpfk.org. My name is Rana Sharif, and I'm a member of the South Asia, West Asia, North Africa, or SWANA collective that brings you a weekly half-hour show of SWANA Region Radio. The music you heard at the top of our show is Like a Sufi by Alif and MC Cash. Today, I have the great honor to share this space with our guest co-hosts, Sinduja Raja, and fellow Swana Region Radio comrade, Saraya Zarouk. Thank you, Rana. It is not often that we get the opportunity to be joined by a scholar, but today we also welcome our guest co-host, Sinduja Raja, to our conversation. Sinduja is a doctoral student from India at the Joseph Corbel School of International Studies at the University of Denver. Sindhija is also project manager of the Women's Rights After War Project. This project, which I'm honored to have recently become a part of, is led by co-investigators Dr. Millie Lake and Dr. Marie Berry and looks at 10 post-war contexts to understand who benefits from post-war gender reform and why. Alongside this project, Sindhija's current research interests are in understanding the gendered relationship between state, society, violence, particularly in South Asia. Welcome, Sindhija. Um, thank you, Soraya and Rana, for uh, inviting me here. Um, today, I'm so excited because we will be speaking with Saiba Varma, Assistant Professor of Anthropology at the University of California, San Diego, and author of the Occupied Clinic, Militarism and Care in Kashmir, which we'll be discussing with her today. In the Occupied Clinic, Saiba Varma explores the psychological, ontological, and political entanglements between medicine and violence in Indian-controlled Kashmir. For a decade, Saiba Varma has been doing research and activism in Indian-controlled Kashmir, the site of a chronic, unresolved conflict and one of the most militarized places on Earth. Her research explores how long-term militarization and violence destabilizes communities and individuals, as well as efforts to redress harms through humanitarianism, humanitarianism excuse me, medicine and psychiatry may be limited. At UCSD, she teaches courses on global health and inequality, medical and psychological anthropology, humanitarianism, conflict and health, affects and emotions. Her research and teaching are driven by a commitment to feminists of color, anti-racist, and decolonial methodologies and approaches to ethnography. It is quite an honor to have Saiba here with us today to discuss her first book, The Occupied Clinic, Militarism and Care in Kashmir, out of Duke University Press. She has also published in major journals such as American Ethnologist, Feminist Studies, and Medical Anthropology, as well as in public outlets such as The Nation's Salon, Warscapes, and Al Jazeera. Thank you so much, Saiba, for being here with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. So um, I thought it would be a really good idea to open up our discussion of your book with a conversation perhaps regarding context. The plight of Kashmiris and the struggle for self-determination uh, predates the establishment of the Indian state. 
Could you offer our listeners a brief historical framing to better situate the important work you do in your book? Absolutely. Um, so I think like many people, my you know impression of Kashmir was as the sort of disputed region, um, this kind of border dispute between India, Pakistan, and China. And um, so something that, you know, happened after the partition of India and Pakistan in 1947, um, and was always sort of presented as a problem, you know, as a puzzle to be solved. Uh, but when I began doing research in Kashmir in 2007, um, I, you know, quickly found out that the ways in which people in Kashmir theorized and thought about their own history was very different uh, from the ways in which many of us had learned about Kashmir, the way that Kashmir had kind of entered our consciousness. And so uh, people in Kashmir trace back their, you know, history of colonization to 1586, um, which is when the Mughals first entered Kashmir and, um, you know, deposed the last Kashmiri ruler. And so for them, this is a more than 450 year long struggle of self-determination and decolonization. Um, and I think that that framing completely sort of, you know, changed how I thought about um, Kashmir. And, you know, uh, it was rather India, Pakistan, China, these sort of newer entities that seem to be more <laughs> the ones out of place than actually people in Kashmir who have been sort of um, agitating and articulating these demands for for more than four centuries. Um, and but like you said in, in the beginning, um, a lot of the talk around contemporary Kashmir is on the militarization and which is something that you really bring out in your book. So and one of the major frames within that book is how violence and care emanate from the same place and sort of loop back into each other. So and how you noted that you stopped looking for medicine in violence, but rather started looking for violence through medicine. So can you speak about how these logics of care and militarization are so intertwined, how you came to the need to look for violence through medicine, especially given the history of Kashmir as, as framed by these different competing claims and, um, um, and occupation? And, um, and, 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 and how can we extend this to not just a uh, militarized zone like Kashmir, but even beyond? Absolutely. Yeah, thanks for that question. So, um, you know, I think one of the things that makes Kashmir a really interesting place to work in and look at is that, you know, um, unlike other, you know, quote unquote borderlands, and I use that word sort of, I'm saying quotes because for people in Kashmir, it's obviously not a borderland. It's a, it's a borderland only if you're looking from the perspective of India or Pakistan. Um, but one of the things that makes it kind of interesting and strange is that unlike other of these sort of so-called marginalized frontier kind of places, um, you know, Kashmir occupies such a central place in the Indian state imaginary. Um, it evokes these really kind of strong, you know, emotional sentiments of love, of care. Uh, there's a kind of obsession that is replayed through Bollywood films and calendar art. It's like the destination for middle-class Indians for their honeymoons, you know, and this has been, um, the, these kind of desires have been accumulating over decades. Um, and so it was, that was sort of one frame that I was really interested in is that, you know, how is Indian love and care articulated for Kashmir and how does it actually become a kind of chokehold or a strangulation 
um, a kind of almost like an abusive sort of love. And people in Kashmir would often make that sort of marital analogy to me all the time about the Indian state as being this kind of abusive husband that like won't, you know, will never like let you go and tells you that loves you, but like will continue to enact violence against you. Um, so that was like the larger frame. But then I was really also interested in um, in the decades since sort of in Indian military occupation began, you know, since 1990 or so um, and continues on today, how the Indian state had also sort of disguised its own militarization through turning more and more to the language of care, um, as well as to specific tools of things like psychiatry, things like psychology, things like medicine. So using very... Um, kind of medicalized language, like, oh, we are here to heal the traumas of people in Kashmir. And so I was interested in kind of thinking about what happens when medicine, psychiatry actually become tools of warcraft, of counterinsurgency, right? Because this is not something we see only in India. We see this in terms of the U.S. enacting its counterinsurgency, right, in Iraq, Afghanistan, other places. It's, it's also done through the idiom of care. It also mobilizes medicine, psychiatry, um, these kinds of things to justify itself. Um, and I think the third element of, um, of your question was that, you know, I was just really interested in this question of what does it mean to enact care in this extremely militarized place? Like, what forms of care are even possible uh, from the perspective of doctors, from the perspective of aid workers, from the perspective of patients, from, from the perspective of ordinary people? In what ways does uh, militarism seep into the clinic in terms of things that are really hard to see sometimes hard to document things like feelings of mistrust you know this um, encounters between doctors and patients where patients would say I don't know if I'm getting medicine or I'm getting poison you know how do I know because this is part of the state apparatus that has been um, right participating in a project of killing people in Kashmir so how do I know that this medicine is real. Um, so I was really interested in also getting at the more kind of subtle and the indirect effects of militarism. And that would often lead me to sort of not knowing where I was, not knowing what I was doing as a researcher, right? Because I was like, I'm trying to look for medicine, but all I see is violence. All I see is militarism, the traces of militarism. Um, so, so I was trying to sort of capture some of that disorientation that I experienced um, in the book as well. So thinking along those lines, one of the things that I was really struck by was your conversations with, um, with psychiatrists and doctors and patients, right? And so um, I love that expression that you use, um, the counter-hegemonic approach to psychiatric and psychological care. Um, that is espoused by many doctors, but specifically, um, you mentioned one Kashmiri psychiatrist, Dr. Abdul, who talks about really listening um, to your patients and feeling your way through their distress. Um, and so he's guided by something other than in institutional scripts and procedures. Um, so I wanted to ask, how does that ethics of care transform or even call into question our relationships, right, with these institutions or quote-unquote experts that we task with providing care, um, particularly in spaces of conflict and occupation, but also how does that teach us about other spaces of, of institutionalization and expert knowledge? 
Yeah, um, that's a really great question. Um, yeah, so, you know, one thing I, I um, learned sort of very quickly was that um, it was, it like, it's not easy to critique people who are doing this kind of work. Like, care work is, as we know right now with the pandemic, it's abundantly clear to everybody that care work is laborious, it is difficult, it is incomplete, it is low of low value. Um, you know, there are all these aspects of it that make it extremely difficult. And then when you add on top this layer of um, repression, of military repression, basically um, strang like strangling people's ability to speak, right? Because these doctors are working in a public sector. They're working for the, the their state pub employees. And so they're not allowed to um, express any kind of political opinions about what they're going through. And yet, a lot of them have very strong political opinions. A lot of them are very, have pro self-determination politics. Um, and so I was really interested in this very like complex subjectivity of the providers, how they tried to, how they sort of had to navigate so many things, right? This under-resourced public health system that is straining under um, not just like neoliberal reforms that have cut funding to these um, things, but also this epidemic of trauma, this epidemic of mental illness that they are now confronting, right, combined with the sort of political repression that they're seeing, um, combined with their own like sort of moral ideas, their moral calculus, their own desires. Um, so it, it, it's a really sort of complex position. And um, what I realized was that, you know, it's not easy to just critique them as being like, not caring enough as being callous, um, you know, which sometimes I I felt like doing because they would spend like one minute with a patient or two minutes with a patient, you know, and send them off with a diagnosis, which right to me was so shocking um, and seemed like a lack of care. But when I sort of started digging deeper, I realized that, no, actually they have all these really complex positions and um, you know, the moment that you talked about where he's talking about listening as a mode of care, I realized that they they are trying to figure out, right, like, they, they understand their own constraints, they understand the limitations of just treating um, mental illness through psychopharmaceuticals. They know that that's only like a tiny piece of the problem. Um, so it's interesting to me that for them, sort of politics and medicine were not separated out. Um, they were very much trying to sort of grapple with both of those things and, you know, were many times very kind of reflective about their own, their own place within that system and, and also caught in it in, in many ways. Um, and so when we think about this sort of bind that people are in, in Kashmir, right, and then both with the service provide, both with the care providers and with people living there, one of the things that really struck me was how people understand their own sort of, um, you know, loss, um, the loss that, of care that they feel. Which is, and you talk about it in terms of kamzori, which is just a spiritual, moral, and bodily loss of vitality. And and I was thinking about this as a site where multiple sort of colonizations emerge, right? Like one is the post-colonial colonization by India of this, like, uh, of this region. And the other is sort of the biomedical processes that deem Kamzori not sort of diagnosable or treatable, 
right? And and where PTSD and that language is more uh, valuable to use. So when you think about decolonization in in these multiple layered colonizations, where would you where would we think of that? Where where can we imagine that? Yeah, um, I love this this question because um, I think it's so important to kind of think about colonialism as an embodied process, as something that's not just, um, you know, it's not just a military political process, which often it gets, you know, we sort of reduce it to that, but the sort of deep, um, the deep sedimentation of colonialism in the body, right, which is um, something I was trying to convey with this idea of Kamzori was that what are the accumulated effects of, of generations of centuries of being not in control of your own life, not in control of your own political future? What does that do to a person psychically and um, bodily? And, you know, what I learned from Kamzori was, of course, that people didn't separate out their own individual bodies from the, the larger social body, right? For them, that the body is always a relational body. It is always a body that is, um, you know, in, right? It's like being, it's shaped by other bodies. Um, and that was a really powerful, I think that was a really powerful insight to me. Um, also that the, the spiritual body and the political body could also not be disarticulated from each other. And so in people's kind of repeated, you know, even though they were constantly dismissed and told, oh, this this fatigue you're feeling, it's not real, just get over it, like eat more spinach, you know, what, whatever they were told. Um, they kept insisting on it. You know, they kept, they held on to that feeling of weakness. And that was really interesting to me because they had nothing to gain from, uh, from, <laughs> from arguing for that they were still weak, right? They were in fact treated really poorly when they would do that. Um, so why, right? Why were they insisting on weakness? And I realized that it had to do with this sort of, this need to kind of forge a sort of collective, um, right? Uh, uh, like make a collective statement. And I think it precisely goes to your, the way that you framed the question about a demand for a sort of decolonized body, that what would like a decolonized body look like? And I think by insisting on Kamzori, they were saying a decolonized body means that we think about the body as a social, a political, a spiritual, as, as all of this, right? And until we address all of those dimensions of the body, uh, we are not sort of fully decolonized. Um, you know, in the at the end of the chapter, I have a, a little poem um, that I wrote in which, um, which is a story that someone told me, which I, um, I sort of translated into a poem, right? But that story to me was um, so powerful, right? Because it's, it's a story about the Emperor Akbar, right? Who's the first Mughal emperor to um, colonize Kashmir, who comes, comes across the mountains and there are um, tillers, right? Saffron tillers um, in the fields. And he, uh, you know, he has a terrible headache and, so he asked them, you know, I have a terrible headache. Can you help me, these saffron tillers? And they look at him and they say, what is a headache? You know, and this is the story someone told me. And to me, it was such a beautiful sort of um, an example, right? An imagination of what a decolonial body looks like, 
um, that illness is so intimately tied with politics, with our political, you know, our sense of who we are as political subjects. Um, and it's just a, yeah, it's just a funny and sort of beautiful way of expressing that. Thank you so much for sharing that. I, I think that it's really powerful to think about how the body's inscribed by all of these phenomenological experiences of militarization and care and everything in between. And you do it so powerfully in this beautiful and masterful text of yours. And um, by no means is our conversation here to be uh, a breath of the kind of brilliance that we encourage our listeners to go out and actually get your book. But to close out our conversation, to kind of build on what you just shared with us, Saiba, if you could turn to the use of cultural production. So you have poetry, prose, music, which offers it kind of really speaks to the embodied experiences of militarization, occupation, and care. Could you talk about this process in terms of your, yourself as a research activist and what that meant for these stories and the kind of um, knowledge that you are producing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, um, I was really... Um, I really sort of struggle to write this book in the sense that, I mean, all books I think are struggles to write, but I can be more specific. So I think, um, you know, when I finished my dissertation, I was, I couldn't even look at it. Like, I, I just couldn't, you know, I had, I had written a dissertation that was perfectly acceptable. It was a, um, a story about the clinic, you know, it was a medical anthropology text and it was fine. It, it did its job. Uh, but when I was sort of reflecting on it, I, I realized there was so much of myself that I had like sort of unassimilated, I had hidden from myself, um, my own sort of like what it means to be an Indian doing research in Kashmir, the fact that not only am I an Indian, but I, um, you know, my father was in the security establishment, I have, I carry this weight of this history of colonization, even in me. Um, and, you know, thinking about like, you know, Stuart Hall in, um, in the West and the rest has this beautiful statement about how there is no such thing as an innocent discourse. There's no such thing as an innocent Indian. There is no such thing as an innocent Indian, particularly writing about Kashmir. Um, and that was really uh, important for me to begin to acknowledge, begin to confront, as well as my own frailties and my insecurities as a researcher, as an ethnographer, you know, moments where I, I describe like moments in the book where, you know, it was a curfew and I didn't know what I was supposed to do. Like, was I supposed to fight and like go to the clinic, insist on going to the clinic and doing research? Or was I supposed to just give in to the curfew, you know, and let the curfew overtake me and just experience that? No one guide, no one guided me, no one told me what is the way to actually do research, right? I had to feel my way through it and, and stumble. And I feel like so often those experiences are black boxed in, in academic knowledge. We are not honest about what this process really looks like. It's bumps, it's fissures, it's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's live wire kind of nature. Um, and so I, I wanted to sort of capture that through the ethnography. Um, but I also wanted to, and, and I think part of what inspired me to do that and gave me the courage to do that were people in Kashmir who had this incredible history, have this incredible political consciousness because they have to, right? As colonized people, how else do you sort of survive the erasure, the continuous erasure of your history unless you yourself have oral history to traditions, like vernacular traditions? Um, 
and there was a there's a poetry in in the ways in which people learn to speak about it because you have to lighten it up you cannot like continuously like sort of retell this history in this right in this way that that just rip, oppresses you and burdens you you have to find ways of making it palatable beautiful digestible all of these things and so um academic no- language knowledge was just it just felt too dry too um too linear um to capture like all of the sort of multiplicity that i was seeing in the on on the ground and i wanted to make sure that um you know m- this is not a project about giving voice to people in kashmir like they don't need me to give them a voice it's 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 a um it's my effort to be in conversation and to be in dialogue and to amplify some of the beauty that i saw and so the poetry the music all of these other you know the hospitality all of these other forms of everyday care everyday art everyday flourishing um were things that i really you know i i wanted to make space for that and actually sort of provincialize academic knowledge um in the book I think we're going to wrap up now um because we're at time but um thank you so much um to Saiba and to uh Sindhuja our guest today has been Saiba Varma assistant professor of anthropology at the University of California San Diego and author of the occupied clinic militarism and care in Kashmir If you have enjoyed our show, please consider making a donation to KPFK at kpfk.org. Please don't forget to mention Swana Region Radio when you pledge. Your support and only your support keeps this program and the station on the air. We receive no corporate sponsorship, which is what allows us to air this kind of programming, but that means we depend on you to survive. I thank you for your donations. That is all the time we have for our show today. The Swana Collective would like to again thank our guest Saiba Varma and all of our shows are available to download at kpfk.org and can be found as podcasts on Spotify. Thanks again as always to Ahmed Ibrahim for post production support. I am Rana Sharif and on behalf of South Asia, West Asia and North Africa Swana Collective and my co-hosts Saraya Zarouk and Sindhuja Raja and all of our collective members, thank you for tuning in. Wishing you all strength and solidarity. hosts of names i hold on to yours like a sufi oh, 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 break free of the chains dwell in freedom like a sufi lol jigras jigras